Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of the house has much more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if Indeed, we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Hey, good morning. Uh, my name is Keith. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, I get to preach this morning, which I'm super excited about. Uh, I like that there's only six verses. That's good, too. Thanks, Brandon, for that one. Uh, he gave, you gave Josh a way longer one last time. That was great. Um, uh, I'll volunteer as tribute for all the short passages. Just kidding. Um, but this morning, I am really, really excited. I mentioned in first service uh, some very dear saints. Uh, I love this church. And by this church, I mean these people. I, I, I love being a part of this church. And some very, very dear saints, good friends of mine, had got me a um, gift certificate to a, for a Bible rebinding uh, a while back. And then I called my mom and I said, hey, do you have any of dad's old Bibles? My father had passed away a number of years ago. And I said, do you have any of dad's Bibles? And she's like, yeah. And I said, preferably with stuff written in them, you know, it's something. And I said, maybe this version, does he have a Holman Christian standard? And she's looking through and actually found one, sent it to me. I sent it off and I didn't know when I was going to get it back. Um, I thought maybe it would be in time to preach, but I wasn't quite sure. And then it, my, the last thing I received was it wasn't going to be here till Tuesday. And I was like, oh, well, I guess that's okay. But then uh, they, they delivered it yesterday, last night, so it was here for this morning, and I'm just super excited. So uh, I think I got all my crying done in first service, so you guys will have a much better experience with this sermon, hopefully. <laughs> hopefully. But I'm just, uh, it's, it's such a blessing. And I said in the first service, I'll say this again, um, uh, maybe I didn't get all my crying out. Uh, I said to, especially to parents, uh, never underestimate my, my dad was, uh, was very, he, w- he was willing to talk about his faith. That wasn't a problem. Uh, but um, he was most known to his kids by his quiet consistency in the Bible, like writing a ton in the margins of his Bible, doing Bible study, being faithful to the Lord over a number of years. And parents, it makes a difference. Like when your kids see your Bibles open, when your kids find your Bibles, and years after when they're growing up, when they are able to look back at the notes that you wrote when you were struggling or when you were encouraged. It's so awesome. So this is just my plug to do that. Leave your, leave your children with the legacy of you being in love with God and his word. It's just wonderful. It's just a wonderful thing. Dang it. I said I wasn't going to do this. So, but, um, but that's, again, why I'm so excited to preach the word this morning is because I really do believe that as we go through Hebrews, it's so rich it's such a great place for us to spend time as a congregation. It is challenging, but it is so very encouraging. And so I'm happy this morning. So if you'll turn, if you're not already there, turn to Hebrews chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 1 through 6. This is also, I would normally maybe do an intro here, but I also wanted to plug something that we do here as well. We do a podcast uh, on a weekly basis, and uh, 
it just so happens that right now we're kind of bouncing back and forth between adding a little bit more uh, sort of textures to what we're talking about in the book of Hebrews and talking about some other things as well. But if you want more of a deeper dive in the things that we can't get to in the sermons, uh, feel free, any uh, podcast platform that you can hook up with, Spotify, um, uh, Apple, um, Anchor FM, all those things, you can find them there. Um, it's just one more, more way for us to kind of connect and keep this conversation going throughout the course of the week. But Hebrews is rich. I said that already. And uh, even in the, we're three chapters in, and it's almost like my head is swimming with all the concepts that are already going around by chapter three, right? And you'll also note that um, it will seem like a lot of our sermons are going to overlap in terms of the things that we're talking about because the author of Hebrews really does hammer on certain things all over the book. So if you think, oh, this is the same sermon as this sermon, it's not going to be, but most of the sermons will tend to touch on a lot of the same themes because the author of Hebrews has made it very clear what he's going for. Jesus is better, right? Jesus is better than everything, so let me give you every example that I can think of why Jesus is better than whatever it is that you're focusing on, is, is where we land. But in this passage today, we're going to talk about a better ambassador, like who is Jesus, why is he better than Moses, and what are we supposed to do with that? We're going to start with verse 1, and we're going to spend a little bit of time there in considering our calling. Before we consider who Jesus is, before we consider Jesus, we're going to consider our own calling. Now, this is one of those things that we do in Scripture where we tend to race past like introductions, uh, either of a book or tend to race past certain verses because we don't think that there's like super deep theology in there. But can I draw your attention to, to verse 1 and how amazingly full this is just in his, his uh, addressing of Christians? It says, therefore, therefore, Holy brothers and companions in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Therefore, so when we see therefore, what's the question that we ask, Bible students? What is it there for? Good, yes. Yeah. So when, when we're looking at this passage, we do bounce back to what we've seen before and all the wonderful things that we heard uh, Pastor Josh talk about in Christ becoming like us in order to identify with us, right? Like he knows. He knows what it's like to be human, and that's so comforting. And all of these wonderful things that Christ is, now we're considered therefore, because of all these things, we want to consider Jesus. But he addresses the, the readers, the listeners with this, holy brothers and companions in a heavenly calling. That is, there's a lot going on there. And so we're going to park our car right there for just a second. Holy brothers, right? Holy companions, holy brothers and sisters. Listen, holy. What is holy? To be set apart. The author of Hebrews talking to Christians says, you are set apart. You are holy, right? You have been set apart by God which really means what the first the passage before it that Christ is not ashamed to identify with us. Christ is not ashamed to identify with us. Right? We are holy. We've been we've been brought into his kingdom. It's amazing if you think about that for just a second because I don't know about you, but there are some days where I'm ashamed to identify with myself. You know what I mean? Like, I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed for other people who know me, like, like with my wife. Is your husband keep? Oh, I'm sorry about that, right? Like, if I know my own heart, 
I know my own actions. I know how much I'm prone to slipping up. And the fact that Jesus looks at me and says, no, bro, I'm not ashamed to hang out with you. I love you, right? We're, in, we're on the same level here. Like we're, we're operating in the same family. You're my people and I am your savior. I mean, it's amazing to me that I look at this passage and I can say, I am holy. That doesn't mean I'm perfect. But when God looks at me, he sees the righteousness of Christ. He doesn't see all the stupidity that I carry with me. Does that make sense? Isn't that good, though? Isn't that good? And that's where he starts. Like, look, first is like, consider your own calling. Consider who you've been made because of what Christ has done. You know, it's a reference to Christ's perfect sacrifice, his perfect fulfilling of the role of our high priest. Now we are holy. We are set apart. But he doesn't just say that we're holy. He says that we share in a heavenly calling. A heavenly calling means it's not something that you found out yourself, right, by your own works. It's not something that you created because you can't call, call yourself, right? It's weird. That's, you don't call yourself. You are called by someone. That caller is God. God has called us, saints, to share in the riches of Christ as joint heirs with Jesus Christ. We didn't seek this out. So we're holy. We're set apart. Christ is not ashamed to identify with us. But we didn't come up with this on our own. Right? We, we received this, which means it doesn't belong to me. It belongs to us, right? It doesn't just belong to me. It belongs to us, brothers and sisters, companions. What follows this is going to be the exhortation to hold fast to the hope of this calling. We have been called as brothers and sisters, as holy people, out from people who were not God's people into people who are now God's people. Now, if you don't know what a big deal that is, maybe go home and park on that a little bit more, right? It's not just a nice idea. It's not just some path that we happen to discover or that these Christians happen to work their way towards. They have been called by God, set apart as holy, to be joint heirs with Christ, our great high priest. And with this calling in mind, the audience is now invited to consider or to meditate upon Jesus. Now, when we see the word consider, consider Jesus, it's not just like consider Jesus like you would consider if you want like orange juice or coffee. It's not like, it's not like this quick snap decision, hey, consider real quick, which one sounds best to you? It's meditate upon. It's really think deeply about Jesus, like focus on who he is. And the whole rest of this letter is just pouring on, like, here's how great Christ is. Here's how supreme Christ is over everything that's in your mind. Consider Jesus. Why are we invited to consider Jesus? Because our whole frame of life should be routed through this imperative to consider Jesus, right? Everything we do as Christians should be routed through that first consideration. First, consider Jesus. Meditate upon Jesus. Before we decide on the way in which we will live, what do we do? We meditate upon Jesus. Before we decide how we should interact with other people or with situations, where should we go in life? What should we focus on? What are we called to do? Meditate. Consider Jesus. Think of Jesus deeply. Consider him. And uh, Grant Osborne and George Guthrie, who wrote a really great, like, small commentary. It's very accessible commentary on Hebrews. Uh, they say this. There's a liturgical air to this confession with the vertical dimension of a solemn pledge made in the presence of God and a horizontal dimension of a corporate promise made as God's people, right? So you get this, you have a heavenly calling, and he's the apostle and high priest of our confession, our confession. There's a liturgical sort of 
swell about that. So when we come together here in this place, right, we don't just come, we, we're not those people who want to just come and be like, what can I get out of this? And then jet out the door, and then I got my Jesus for the week and everything's cool, right? Because that's not what we are. It's not who we are. And you may have seen us, you know, when we have somebody come up here and take time to talk about confession or do a call to worship or talk about the assurance that we've received or send everyone out. What we're doing is we're all agreeing together that we're united on these things. It's not my calling. It's our calling. It's not my confession. It's our confession, right? We are united. So if you're over here on this side of the room and somebody you don't know over here is on that side of the room and we're all singing together about Jesus and we're standing and listening to the word read or we're reciting some of the words of, of Christ, you know, through scripture or we are um, listening to, uh, talking about confession, we're offering our confession together in prayer, this is, this is what we do, right? There's a liturgical element to it. This is a corporate confession. We are united together as God's people. That's awesome, right? It's awesome. It's not just for me, right? I don't just hold fast my confession. We hold fast our confession. This is written to an audience, not just to a single person. And we tend to forget that, right? We tend to sort of hyper-personalize all these things, and then we forget about the people around us. And one of the things that we see in Hebrews, even by the time we get to like chapter 11, is like, hey, consider all the people around you who have been faithful. Consider all the members of God's house who are cheering you on as you walk with Christ. It's a beautiful intro, right? It's an amazing intro. Before we even get to the consideration of Jesus, all these things that he's told us, the apostle and high priest of our confession, our confession, consider Jesus. So he says, first, consider your calling. Next, he says, consider Jesus, verses 2 through 4. Now, we're going to hang back on the apostle and high priest for just a second so that we can really consider what's happening. He's going to compare and contrast Moses with Jesus. He's doing that because of the audience, right? The audience are Hebrew Christians who would have known the Old Testament very well. But those two words, apostle and high priest, in verse 1, that are used to describe Jesus, uh, apostle is the one that's a little... Uh, kind of throws us off a little bit. It's like, wait, how is Jesus an apostle? Jesus had apostles. How is Jesus an apostle? Well, Jesus is the perfect representative and the perfect sacrifice, and the word apostle simply means sent one. So let's say, what's the, the word apostle means? Sent one. Good. Now we've all learned a little bit of, uh, a little bit of Greek there too, right? Uh, this is the only time, though, that Jesus is referred to specifically as an apostle, right? Apostle um, and, and high priest. This is the only time he's referred to by that term apostle. But what the author of Hebrews is trying to communicate here is that Jesus is God's representative and kind of in the same way that Moses was called and sent to the people to, to declare to them that Yahweh was going to bring them, you know, the great I am was going to bring them out of bondage and lead them into the promised land. Moses was the sent one to be the representative on behalf of God to the people. And what we get is that Jesus is that times infinity, right? Like the perfect that. Jesus is God's representative in a much greater way. And if you think back to Hebrews chapter 1, Christ is actually the, the exact representation of his being. The exact representation. So Moses was a flawed representation in that, you know, and we know that he was flawed. One, because he killed a dude and then ran off, right? So he was definitely flawed. Jesus is the exact representation of God. He is the perfect apostle, the perfect sent one. 
Now, the high priest concept, we're going to deal with that so much, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that right now. I'm going to let Brandon handle that one later on, and so you can ask him all the high priest questions. If you're okay with that, Brandon, I'll just scooch by that one. Uh, But he is the apostle and high priest of our confession, right? Again, of our confession. All these wonderful descriptions of who Christ is are meant to give strength to confidence in our confession of Christ as Lord, right? This confident confession that's shared among God's people. And again, the added confidence knowing that we're not alone in this confession. If you thought you were the only one who confesses Christ as Lord, you would feel completely alone. Praise be to God, he has not left us completely alone. It's like when Elijah runs off and is like, I'm the only one left. And he's like, no, you're not. Suck it up. We'll be okay, right? We're going to be okay. God knows those whom he's called, and we are not alone. But we get this, uh, this idea about Jesus and Moses in verse 2. He was faithful to the one, Jesus, meaning Jesus, he was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was in all God's household. So as we're considering Jesus, we're considering a contrast to the audience between Jesus and Moses. And let's be clear, this is not trashing Moses. This is not in an effort to trash Moses. That's not what the author of Hebrews is doing. He's just proclaiming the, the, the betterness, the supremacy of Jesus over Moses. He's like, if you like, it's like those commercials. If you like this, you'll love this, right? It's like the old Christian music. You'd go into the Christian music store and they'd be like, if you love Alanis Morissette, you'll love Rebecca St. James. And I'm like, that's not true, but, but I get where you're going with that, right? Like if you love Moses, you'll really love Jesus. He's new and approved, right? It's, it's one of those things. Like if you love Moses, if you're in with Moses, you should be good with Jesus, um, that's how that's going, right? He was faithful to the one who appointed him just as Moses was faithful. Jesus actually fulfills the calling of Moses. If you look at it in the Old Testament, what Moses was called to do, Jesus is actually the perfect fulfillment of everything that Moses was called to do, right? Jesus does it perfectly. He represents God to the people. He represents the people to God perfectly. That's what Jesus does. The author of Hebrews is presenting both Moses and Jesus as faithful servants But he's also going to draw the line of distinction between Moses and Jesus. He's not just going to compare them. He will contrast them also. And, you know, Moses was faithful. Again, I want to say, this is not a trashing of Moses. We're not trashing the Old Testament, okay? Moses was faithful, but Jesus created him. That's what the author says. Like, yeah, Moses was good, but he was made by Jesus. Like, Jesus made the dude. Uh, For Jesus is considered worthy of more glory than Moses, just as the builder has more honor than the house. Why is there a contrast with Moses? Why? Because of the audience. Moses is symbolic of the old covenant, right? He's used as a compare contrast with Jesus, the the new covenant, to show that while God's work has always been wise and good, it has always been meant to point to Jesus as the perfect fulfillment and the better representative. And we've said this before and we'll continue to say it. Old Testament is not throwaway. A lot of people that you encounter or may, may not be Christians will be like, oh, the Old Testament is full of misogyny and it's, it's, uh, it's like this God who's capricious and malevolent and the, the New Testament is when like everything changes. It's like, no, that's not how things go. That's not how things are presented. We treasure the Old Testament because what's happening in the Old Testament is showing us that even when God is like, hey, I'm here, I'm with you, your people, they still screw it up, Right? We still mess it up. And then the New Testament is, is showing us not just God 
not just God with us, but God with us in our midst. God himself took on humanity and became the perfect sacrifice. Old Testament, you see the need for sacrifices, but the fulfillment of Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. So everything we see there is meant to point forward to Christ, right? That's what we see in the Old Testament. And this is what the author is doing all through Hebrews, but specifically with Moses here about an ambassador, right? Again, note that this is not a, a thrashing of Moses. It has always been meant to point to Jesus as the perfect fulfillment and the better representative, because he is. Jesus is the better representative for God's people, okay? Moses was faithful, though. Numbers chapter 12, I want to show you this. This is why we know it's not trashing Moses. In Numbers chapter 12, verses 5 through 7, we see this. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward. If you know this story, you're getting nervous for Aaron and, Aaron and Miriam right now, right? Like when you get called out by God, when God's like, come here, I want to talk to you for a second. It's like when your dad's like, hey, come here, we need to talk about something. You're like, oh no, this can't be good, right? This can't be good. Can I talk to you for a second? He called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward, and he said, hear my words. If there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him, I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? That's Moses' resume right there to me. Like, you could be like, what did, what did Moses do for the people? The resume of Moses to me is I speak with him mouth to mouth, clearly, not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. That's, in case you didn't catch in the Old Testament, that's not a thing that happens often, right? Like this is, Moses has that market cornered in being that guy. And so when we look at Moses, these Hebrew Christians would have been like, Moses is a big deal. Moses is a big deal. He was faithful in all of God's house, and we need to be clear about that. It's not like Moses is bad, Jesus is good. It's like Moses was great, Jesus is better, right? Moses had been sent by God as ambassador on his behalf over the house of Israel. He had been given the charge of leading the whole nation. Moses was, in God's own testimony, greater than a prophet. But Moses was a servant in God's house. He was not the builder of God's house. Moses was a dweller in God's house. He was not the builder of God's house. The example of Moses as faithful, though, is important because through much of Hebrews, the warnings that we see in Hebrews, which we'll get to here a little bit later, seem to indicate that many of the readers were probably more like the faithless wilderness wandering Israel than the faithful Moses, right? So a lot of these exhortations are to encourage people not to be faithless, but to be faithful. And if they esteem Moses for his faithfulness, then how much more should they or we consider Jesus, who's the greater Moses, right? Moses is good. Jesus is better. If you esteem Moses for being faithful, why wouldn't you esteem Jesus as better? Because he was perfect. His faithfulness was perfect without marks at all. Don't turn from Jesus to go back to Moses. Because Jesus is better. He's greater. And we see this phrase, the builder, right? One who appointed him. Moses was faithful in God's household. But verse 3, Jesus is considered worthy of more glory than Moses, just as the builder has more honor than the house. One of the confusing things about Hebrews is uh, the dude that wrote it throws a lot of metaphors, and sometimes they all crash together in weird ways. 
it's, it's really unnerving. If you're reading through it, you're like, man, this guy loves metaphors, and he loves just throwing them all in a pile at times and being like, here, sort this out. Um, but, uh, but this particular one, the builder and the house, is one that he uses right here. But it's, it's really, really, really smart. The author of Hebrews is using house, right, as the description of the people of God, right? There, his house. And we see that teased out in, into the New Testament, right? The temple, we know, is not really what we think the temple is now. The temple is God's people. So God makes his dwelling with his people, where at one point in time was in a tabernacle and then was in a temple and, uh, you know, Christ is the, Christ also was the temple, but now we as God's people, as the body of Christ, are the, the temple, right? But we are the house. God's people are the house, all of God's household. So he's using house as the description of the people of God. The author of Hebrews is also going to float between, again, like I said, mixing some types of metaphors, but they're all metaphors that Hebrews would have understood. That's what we need to understand when we read this, is some things we almost have to be in the mindset of those Second Temple Jews who would have been kind of understanding things that are a little bit hard for us to understand at first. Moses was and is part of the house of God, but Moses did not commission the building of the house, right? He's part of it, but he didn't build it. God did. And because of who Jesus is, and we've seen this earlier in Hebrews, because of who Jesus is, Jesus is God, right? He is the one who actually commissioned the house. Jesus is the one who sent Moses to call his people out of bondage. Jesus is the one who guided Israel through the wilderness. Jesus built the house. Yes? Jesus built the house. Moses lived in it. Now, I used to work for the Illinois Bureau of Tourism, or we called it IBOT. Now, before you think I was something fancy, I had a job in college where I sat on a phone and helped people plan their wonderful weekend getaway in Illinois. If you're from Illinois, you're laughing internally about that right now. Uh, the number one tourist um, destination in Illinois for quite a few years was uh, uh, the big mall in Schaumburg, which is really weird, but it makes sense if you're from Illinois. Um, but I used to work for the Illinois Bureau of Tourism, and I'd help people plan getaways to wonderful Illinois. And uh, one of those attractions around Chicago would, would be these tours. People would call in and ask about the Frank Lloyd Wright architecture tours. So you get to go around and look at all the, the houses that Frank Lloyd Wright had designed that are built there in uh, Chicago and surrounding areas. And they are cool. Raise your hand if you've ever seen a Frank Lloyd Wright house. Okay? If you haven't, just go home and look them up. They're really cool. Architecturally, they're, they're real fun, right? Um, and I can understand why people want to go tour those things because they're, they're pretty great. And they mean a lot because his name is attached to the house, right? Um, now, you could, you could probably cobble together a house. If you know what you're doing, you could probably put together a house that looks like one of the houses that Frank Lloyd Wright built. But if you put it on the market, it ain't going to fetch the same price as a Frank Lloyd Wright house. Agreed? Like, you'd be like, oh, did you hear? I bought a house that looks just like a Frank Lloyd Wright house. And people are going to be like, so Frank Lloyd Wright built it? And you're like, well, no, but it looks like it. And they're going to be like, so? Right? It's the name. It's the name on the house. People don't just go tour houses that look like Frank Lloyd Wright's houses. They tour the houses that he built. You could build a house that looks like it, but you'll pay more for the house that he actually built. It's more valuable. Why? Because the builder of the house has more glory than the house. You're going to pay a lot of money for a Frank Lloyd Wright house because of the name attached to the builder. The greatness of the builder is what determines the value of the house, right? It's the greatness of the builder. Verse 4, we see this. Now every house is built by someone, but the one who built everything is God, right? And we know that Jesus is God. Jesus built the house. Why is Jesus greater than Moses? 
Moses lived in the house that Jesus built. It's all his. It all belongs to him. If you love Moses, you should be like over the moon about Jesus because the thing that Moses tended, Jesus built, right? And that's the exhortation to these Hebrew Christians. Jesus is worth more glory than Moses because of who he is. He's a greater savior, right? Moses rescued the people from Egypt, but Jesus is a greater Savior. He doesn't just deliver us temporally. He delivers us eternally and perfectly. He's a greater prophet. He has revealed the very nature of God to us. He hasn't just revealed God. He's revealed the very nature of God to us. He's a greater king. He's the author, not only of all life, but of eternal life, which he proved by rising from the grave. Jesus is greater than Moses, again, primarily because Jesus is the one who's created all things. Jesus is ruling and reigning, and every molecule in your body right now is being held together because Jesus deems it to be so. That's pretty fantastic when you think about it. The house is God's people, the church, right? That belongs to Jesus. Christ has built all things and is the cornerstone on which the church is built. Christ is the foundation of the house that Moses himself lived in, though we only see that by looking backwards. Right? We only see that by looking backwards, that Moses was living in the house that Jesus ultimately built and pointing forward to the fulfillment of all those things. And this verse also affirms the deity of Christ. Don't miss that. Like when it talks about, when it says the builder of all things is God, that's in reference to Jesus. So the author of Hebrews is drawing a direct line, as he has already, in saying like, look, don't forget, Jesus is not just some guy. Jesus is not just some prophet. Jesus is God. He is God. He's the builder of the house that Moses lived in. And the beauty and the joy of Hebrews is that we see the eternal plan of God to show all things as like shadows or copies of the mystery of Christ as the pinnacle of all history, right? Everything that we see, like Hebrews is telling us, all these things that you see in the Old Testament, they ultimately find their fulfillment and their true understanding in what Christ has done and who Christ is, right? Which is why we should consider Jesus, think deeply on these things, Again, everything in all of time either points forward to Jesus Christ or backward to the cross. And he has purposed his church or his house as the method for sharing this glorious plan with all the nations. Don't forget your calling. It's not just your calling to be like, isn't it nice that Jesus is better than Moses? It's our calling to proclaim that and to help other people understand that. To come alongside people in the same way that Philip did with the Ethiopian and explain to them what this means. Because we know what this means. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying. Like, you guys know what this means now. All these things that you thought were great about Moses are better in Jesus. We find their perfect fulfillment. So consider Jesus. And then in verses 5 and 6, there's another consideration of Jesus. But it's mostly kind of rooted in this, that we consider our hope. So you consider your calling. You consider who Jesus is in relation to who Moses is, the greater ambassador. But then we consider our hope. What meaning does this have for us? So if we're considering Christ and we have all these things in mind, what difference does that make? And then we see this in verse 5. Moses was faithful, faithful as a servant in all God's household as a testimony to what would be said in the future. Right? Do you see what's happening? As a testimony to what would be said in the future. So Moses was faithful in the house to point forward to what was actually going to be fulfilled. But, but Christ was faithful as a son over his household, right? So we move from servant to son. 
Moses took care of the house, but when the son comes home, you can send the servant. You're like, hey, you did your job. I've got it from here, right? Because the son, that's his, belongs to him. By inheritance, that house belongs to him, not to the servant, belongs to him. The author now moves from the builder of the house to the son of the house. And again, Moses was shown to be faithful as a servant, but he was still a servant in the house of God. He was not the son, right? In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, we see even Peter saying that all the prophets, what the prophets were saying was pointing forward to Christ. And this was also Moses' role as servant in the house. He was faithful to serve the Lord, but now Christ has come and is not just a servant, but the son. Jesus is who Moses was pointing to in his service. And note the change in, in title in this verse. This is the first time in Hebrews where we see him change from Jesus to Christ. Right? It's not, he's not, he doesn't say Christ, or Jesus was faithful as a son. He says, but Christ was faithful. This is the first time when he switches from Jesus to Christ, which is an emphasis on the office of Messiah. While Moses was faithful in his role, Jesus is sovereign over every detail of the house. He has created it, he has redeemed it, and he will bring it to completion. Church, we have nothing, I mean, like, yes, we have things to worry about, but ultimately we have nothing to worry about. Christ has promised, like, he will build his church and the gates of hell will not withstand it. That is a promise that we can bank on. As dark as things might seem to be, this is written to a people who were, who were like, struggling with persecution, right? Who, who are deciding, is it going to be easier to just go back to, to Judaism or do I stay faithful to Christ? We have been promised that the house that Jesus built will stand because it's built on the foundation of Christ himself, the cornerstone, right? Matthew 21, verses 33 through 46, if you want to understand a little bit more about this servant-son concept, Jesus himself speaks of it um, in the parable of the tenants. And I think it's really interesting that Jesus addresses this thing, considering what the author of Hebrews uh, also says about Christ being the son of the house. Basically, the parable of the tenants in Matthew chapter 21 is that these tenants of the house, right, these renters, um, they think they own the joint. So they're going to kill everybody and take it over. So the servants come who represent the owner of the house, and then these tenants decide, well, we're just going to kill the servants. So they kill the servants. And that's meant to Jesus is trying to help us understand that's what they did to the prophets. So the prophets come and they say, hey, you guys are really screwing up. They're like, hey, let's kill them and not listen to them. So they kill them, right? The prophets are being faithful to God's house, but all the renters of the house, the, the not truly God's people, want to kill the prophets. But then you get to this point where the son, he says, well, I'll send my son because they have to listen to my son. And he sends the son. What do they do? They kill him, right? They kill him. And so then the point is like, don't you think that if they kill the son, like the owner is going to be pretty upset about that? Right? They send the servants, they kill the servants, send the son, kill the son. It's a bigger deal when you kill the son. And what was Jesus' statement at the end of the parable? Have you never read in the scriptures, Jesus says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits, and the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The son is a big deal right? The son is a big deal. Moses, who was faithful, was a servant in the house. The prophets before him, servants in the house. But when the son of the house is sent, it is the direct representative of the owner of the house. And when Christ was killed, that's a big that is a big deal. It's not just a big deal for the reasons that we think it is. That's the son coming to claim the house 
And the way that he was received is, let's just kill him and take the house. The joke's on them, though, because through his resurrection, he cemented who he was, and he redeemed the house. It's pretty awesome, isn't it? It's pretty amazing. Jesus, the eternal Son, very God of God, is faithful over his house, the church. It belongs to him. It was given to him by the Father, purchased by his own blood. He built it, and get this, he dwells together with it. And for the first time in the letter, right, for the first time in the letter, we see this idea of Messiah. Christ is the Son. The Messiah is the Son. And with all that in mind, so the author of Hebrews is like, listen, Jesus is better, man. Like, if you, if you like Moses, consider Jesus. If you're prone to turning away from Jesus, will you consider your calling? Will you consider who Jesus is? Consider his identity. Consider his power. Consider his pedigree. Consider who he is. And now, consider your hope in that. Consider your hope in that, right? Verse 6b. Look at 6b with me. Christ was faithful over his son over his household. Whose household we are if we hold on to the courage and confidence of our hope. I don't like that if, because if I'm honest with you, like I, I am, I'm, very, I'm a very strong uh, Reformed theology guy, right? By that I mean, like, if you don't know what that means, what it means is like, I am very much like nothing that we do secures our salvation. God has saved us gloriously, and uh, it's not my obedience that cements that. It's his obedience that cements that. So even if I screw up, it's not like he casts me aside. So, and I know that those who God saves, he keeps. No one can ever snatch them from the palm of my hand, right? I, I believe all those things. And then in Hebrews, I get really nervous because I see a lot of these warnings, and I'm like, you know, I still believe these things, but there's still warnings here. And so what are these supposed to mean to us as believers? If we hold on, we are his household if we hold on to the courage and confidence of our hope. It's a little unnerving to me. It might be to you too, right? It might be to you too. What are we supposed to do with these warnings? Well, there's going to be more of them. But in 1 Peter 2.5, we see this. And you can turn there if you want to. In fact, let's, let's take it. We've got a couple minutes. Let's, let's go there together. 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, verse 5. Just a few pages over from Hebrews. You yourselves as living stones are being built into a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now that verse, when we consider everything that we're seeing in Hebrews, is crazy. Because then that says basically the one who built the house, who is the apostle and the high priest, then builds together his house and then he makes them priests. So then we go and, and uh, proclaim his excellency to others, right? We offer spiritual sacrifices, so our high priest has got us covered, but everything we do is a spiritual sacrifice to him that we offer out of gratefulness for what he's already done for us. It's pretty amazing when you think about it, right? That we are being built into that house, and we do work, right? We offer spiritual sacrifices, but all those things are based on what Christ has done to build the house. Does that make sense? Christ as the cornerstone, in the beginning of this passage, we're reminded of our calling, and this is reinforced by presenting the glory of the one who has called us to be his house. He is faithful to us. Let me say that again. He is faithful to us. We are often unfaithful, but he is faithful to us to accomplish all things pursuant to the calling that he has given us 
and he has also given us one another, right? All this comes together. All of this stuff comes together. What Christ has built, he is faithful to sustain. We've said that. Our confidence in Christ is based off of his credibility as the better Moses. Your confidence in Christ is not based off of your, your faithfulness, right? It's based off of Christ's credibility, not your credibility, the better ambassador sent to us to reveal the Father to us, to be our sacrifice, and to adopt us into his household. Our confidence to hold fast is rooted in his accomplishments, not in ours. In his accomplishments, in what he's done. That's why we're like, hey, look at Jesus because he's better. Because what Jesus has done is perfect, right? All that he's done is perfect for all time. And so we now participate in the benefits of what he has accomplished, right? We didn't do this. We didn't do this. 1 Peter 2, 6 and verse 6, it says this, for it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. I just want to do a dance because of that verse, right? Think about that for a second. Whoever believes in him will never be put to shame. Christian, look, there are a lot of times when we're going to question things, but we need to hang on to this. Whoever believes in Christ will never be put to shame. Like we have a sure hope in Christ. We have a steadfast hope in Jesus Christ. Consider Jesus not because of what you're able to do, but because of what Christ has done for us. What a wonderful promise. Whoever believes in him will never be put to shame. And he says, you know, but then we see that if indeed we hold fast our confidence and boasting and hope. But this is not so much a conditional statement. It's a descriptive statement. What's being communicated here, so let me let, me let you in on this. What's being communicated here is that the confidence and boasting in our hope that we have is an indicator that we are indeed part of Christ's house. Our joy and hope in believing is actually a reflection of what we have already received from him as our calling. Our joy and hope comes from knowing that we've been called by Christ. Jesus himself admonished us, though, in Matthew 10, that the one who endures to the end shall be saved, which was in the context of saying, if they call the master of the house Beelzebul, how much will they malign the members of the house? Christian, here's the reality. For these Christians and us, it's not easy, right? The reason that there are warnings is because it is very tempting to just drop everything and go find some way of living that's much easier to handle. But I will tell you this. You, we may think that it's going to be easier, but there will be no joy and no satisfaction ultimately if we turn away from Jesus Christ. Ultimately, there is only hope. There is only peace. There is only joy in knowing Jesus Christ. And that's kind of the admonishment here. Don't turn away from the true source of hope. The invitation to consider Jesus as his holy and heavenly people is further emphasized by a declaration that his work produces a confidence in boasting in our hope. We can't save ourselves. So we see that this work has been accomplished by Jesus Christ. If your hope was relying on you, you would be boasting in yourself, right? If you, knew, if you thought that your hope was relying on you, you would tell everybody how great you are and how stupid they were that you found the answer and they didn't. But that's not what we do because that's not what we've done. We take joy in what Christ has done for us. Our confidence is in what Christ has already done. The warnings against apostasy in Hebrews are the author's way of marking those who have come to truly believe in the work of Christ. Those who persevere are his and his are those who persevere till the end. Of the metaphors that are used to define the church, assembly, community, family, body of Christ, temple, the picture of the church as the house of God provides one of the deepest portraits 
connected to the idea of the church as God's family and also with the temple in the Old Testament as the house of God. So those who fail to persevere are basically being warned that they're on the verge of being kicked out of their house. You know what I mean? Like, hey, you're part of the house. Don't get kicked out of the house, right? Stay in the house. Trust in the builder of the house. It's a great commentary um, from, again, from George Guthrie and Grant Osborne. They shared that. Christ, the sent sacrifice, is our only hope, not only in this life, but for all eternity. In all things, he must be preeminent. And we must carefully weigh out what, are we, are, what we are putting our hope and our confidence in. That's why we need to meditate on that. Consider, where is our hope and where is our confidence? Is it in us? Is it in Moses? Is it in the, the culture? Is it in just the people around us? Is it the ways of the world, right? Is it in money, status? Right? What is our hope in? The next section, we'll be looking more closely into the warnings against neglecting this consideration, but the author of Hebrews is giving us strong evidence that our hope in Christ is never misplaced. Romans 10, 11 through 13. I'm going to finish with this because I just, I, I, I love this. Now the scripture says, no one who believes on him will be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, since the same Lord of all is rich to all who call on him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's a good promise. We could spend time arguing about the nuances of what the author is saying in his warnings, but we must also see the harmony of God's whole counsel. Anyone who truly places their confidence in Jesus will never be put to shame. Even through persecution, through trial, through hardship, the Lord is faithful to his people. He's proven that. And he's proven that primarily through Jesus Christ, the better ambassador. He's faithful to his people, and his people will receive the promise of eternal rest. So today, I want to ask you to consider a few things as we consider Jesus. First of all, if you're in here this morning and you've never trusted in Christ, will you consider Jesus this morning? Are you somebody who's still limping back and forth between two opinions, as, as we see in the Old Testament, right? Not kind of riding the fence. Maybe, maybe Jesus is it. Maybe he's not. You're not quite convinced there's not a better confidence in this life. Maybe you could find something better. Maybe Jesus is all right. Today, could I invite you to consider Jesus? Do you have the courage and the confidence to put all of your hope in Jesus? Because it takes a lot of both. For those of us who are believers, what about this? What is the implication of being called holy brothers and sisters? Do you currently see believers as family? Do we see each other as family? One of the values we have here at this body of believers is we want to value building community over busy calendars. But for many of us, myself included, our calendars tend to run everything else, right? We, we kind of line things up, and then it's like, oh, well, I don't have time to hang out. I don't have time to study the Bible. I don't have time to pray together. I don't have time to you know, spend time sharing meals with other believers. Um, too many of us are building our own house and neglecting to live in the one that Christ has built. So this is an invitation as we consider Jesus to actually live in the house that Jesus has built, which, brothers and sisters, is us together. Second, what things is the world calling you to consider as better than Jesus? What are some things that pop up in your mind as being tempting? Like maybe this is a better way than, than living for Jesus. What things does my life show I have hope or confidence in? Or maybe a question we need to ask ourselves is this. What steals your joy when you don't have it? What steals your joy when you don't have it? That's a pretty good indicator of where our confidence and hope is. Third is this. How does Moses' faithfulness and the if at the end of the passage motivate us positively to serve in God's house, right? 
If Moses, a sinful man, was chosen to serve in God's house, how can we be encouraged? Because our service is meant to point to Jesus and all glory is meant to go to him. So how can we consider that if as a way to continually consider Jesus and his goodness towards us? Brothers and sisters, what does it look like for us to be faithful right now? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for um, your grace and your mercy. Thank you for the hope that we have in Christ, the better ambassador, the cornerstone of our faith, the better messenger, the better representative, the better high priest. Lord, help us to understand the implications of what it means to walk after you, to be faithful to you, not based on what we have to offer you, but based on what Christ has already offered to us as his people. Lord, this morning we ask that you would uh, encourage the faint-hearted, Lord, that you would uh, come alongside those who are really, really struggling with faith, who are not quite sure whether or not Jesus is worth diving all in with. Lord, would you give them uh, comfort and assurance this morning that Jesus really is better? And Lord, for any who are in this room today and have never trusted in Jesus Christ, may you show them by your Holy Spirit that all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved and those who are saved will never be ashamed. Lord, we love you. We praise your name. We ask for your grace as we uh, wrap up our time together this morning. Lord, help us to commune with one another and share the joy of knowing Christ. It's in Christ's name we pray.